What is up? What is going on, everybody? You are listening to a podcast where the three hosts collectively maybe have the IQ of a 10-year-old? We'll find out on the other side of the song. Welcome back to another episode of The Threequel. As always, I'm one of your three co-hosts, Ethan Klein. Here with me, Mike Duranik and Brad Miller. Gentlemen, that cold open hopefully uh, gave you guys a chuckle because I don't know how much laughing we'll be doing on this episode as we talk prisoners. Uh, but before we get into it, how are you guys doing? Doing all right. Better than uh, last night when I finished this movie. Um, <laughs> I stayed up a little later than expected because I had to do a deep dive on some things that I saw. And uh, yeah, it did not disappoint Um but yeah, doing doing well. How about you, Mike? Uh, I also am doing well, Brad. And I didn't watch it last night. I watched it on Saturday night, and I'm glad that I did because, um, yeah, I I would have probably not uh, gotten enough sleep last night if I had watched it on a Sunday night. At least I was able to sleep in a little bit later Sunday morning to make up for that. So this was, I'm pretty sure, a first for the threequel. Neither of you had seen this movie before. I had. I suggested it uh, here for the month of September. So usually I ask how you guys uh, came to experience the film the first time. Since this is your first experience, I will just give my answer to that question. And my answer is that this was a theater watch for me. Um, In 2013, Jake Gyllenhaal probably had not taken the mantle yet of my personal favorite actor, which he is currently. Um, but this was definitely one of the big steps that led to that happening. Um, but I was a fan of his, was a big Hugh Jackman fan. Um, we will get into the director, um, was not on name recognition with him. Uh, but again, this is one of the movies that really set that up. Um, how big of a fan I am of his, but went and saw this in theaters with a bunch of friends was a huge fan of it. Um, I have not seen this movie 25 times, Brad, um, since that's kind of the, uh, bar that has been set for my rewatchability of a film. Um, but this is probably the fourth time that I've seen it fourth or fifth time. It is one that I've shown a couple people. Um, but I guess, I guess, We'll we'll just get into it. I don't know. Do you guys want to give just some like, I guess, what did you know about this movie, Brad? I know the answer to this because we talked about it off air. But did you bring anything into this experience? Did you know anything about this movie at all? What was your experience prior to watching this? Um, well, first, before I answer that, I want to say that that has to be a career highlight for Jake Gyllenhaal, like to be on your mantle of your personal favorite. Like, I mean, he turned on a Grammy because he said, no, I'd rather be on Ethan's mantle of favorite actor. So well done Ethan to get him up there and fulfill his lifelong goal of being your personal favorite. Um, I, I don't even know that he's my favorite Gyllenhaal. So, uh, Ooh, bold statement there. Right. Uh, uh <laughs> he's definitely my favorite, but, uh, to answer your question, um, I knew absolutely nothing. I turned it on and thought it was going to be a movie about like a jailbreak or something. Um, you know, some guys in prison and about, Oh, I don't know, a minute into it. I just took that deep breath. Cause I'm like, Oh, okay. Abduction movie. Here we go. Um, and I will say that it has a high bar in my, in my uh, mind because true detective is amazing. And, uh, so far, I don't know that anyone has done abduction as well as that. But uh, I got to say that this one, uh, it came in swinging, came in hot. And the uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna have some pretty good takes on on the writer and the director of this because uh, very impressed with the detail that they added to this film. To be clear, when you say uh, high bar, the True Detective sets, uh, you're saying outside of all of the Taken movies, right? Because clearly Liam Neeson. <laughs> well, uh, I think Taken kind of seems like a spoof, honestly, in, on something like this. And, and uh, 
I guess too, like the same thing, like the, the thing I can't get my head around in the Taken, uh, what is it, a trilogy now, um, is how the same crap happens to the same guy over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I like those movies, but as far as uh, um, the depth of what you're experiencing, it, it doesn't do justice to what uh, True Detective and, and this movie do. Yes, and and um, I agree with everything that you said. Of course, I had to to poke a little fun there, but uh, yeah. and also you know throw out for Liam Neeson. So, Ethan, to answer your question directly, uh, as I told you when you asked if we had seen this, and I said no. Um, much like Brad often likes to do at our Rotten Tomatoes game, I unintentionally lied to you. Um, I had seen part of this, but I had no recollection of it. I, I saw probably the first 30, 35, 40 minutes of this at one point. And as I was re-watching this, uh, all of a sudden I was like, man, I've seen this movie before. And then I was like, have I seen this whole movie? And at some point, this must have been on television, and I must have stopped watching it. Um because I definitely had not seen the the back hour and a half of this movie. So what I came into with this was having not seen it in my mind. And then I realized I had seen part of it, but I definitely hadn't seen the, the payoff. And uh, much like Brad, what I'll say just to kind of open us up from my perspective is quite impressed. Uh, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of uh, discussion to be had about this movie, uh, but overall a very positive first full watch through. I- I'll say too, like there were some deja vu moments for me watching this. I, I really don't think I've seen it in like any part of it at all, but there were some moments in it that uh, just, I had to stop and think, I don't know if there were similar scenes to other movies with, you know, background or maybe the, the music or, or something, but there were two or three moments where it's like, I had to, I had to have to pause and think, had I seen this before? So um, maybe I had stumbled across part of it before, but I really don't believe so. All right. So before we get into the performances or anything like that, talk about those guys, I always bring a thesis statement and I do want to give us as much time as possible to talk about some of the themes and things like that, that, um, you guys have already kind of hinted at. So for me, just the basic thesis statement that I would normally bring to the, it's kind of twofold. In terms of the threequel, I will put my stamp on this as across the board, every single person involved. I think this is the most well-acted film we have reviewed on the threequel. Um, you know, maybe a single performance from different movies would rank higher, but in terms of the collective ensemble, I think this is the best piece of acting we have watched on this show and then along with that this is a movie to me that proves that the academy in terms of oscars and academy awards is completely broken and when i say that it is because this movie has one nomination and it is for cinematography this movie got overlooked i don't know if it's because how dark it is but that's never really been an issue in fact the this year the film that won Best Picture was 12 Years a Slave. So clearly the Academy does not care about movies that are hard to watch. Um, Now, granted, that film was telling a story that more people, it had more historical uh, resonance, and that's why that movie really, you know, got the big push that it did. But this movie got completely overlooked, and I would say... I mean, obviously, I love this film, so it might be a little biased. Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal, Melissa... I mean, Melissa Leo's not in a ton of it, but Paul Dano, for sure, all should have been nominated for their acting performances in this. Denis Villeneuve absolutely should have been for directing. Brad, you said you're going to talk about the writing, the way they craft this story. Uh, I mean, I think it's just a travesty that this movie got overlooked in, in the way that it did, especially in the year that it did where 12 Years a Slave wins Best Picture. Have, have you guys seen that movie? I have not. I have not. You know, the people that perform in that movie, it, it's a very well-done movie, but, like, you know, Michael Fassbender got nominated, right? It's very one-dimensional and very easy, in my opinion, to play a racist plantation owner in the Deep South. It's a lot harder to do the things that the actors in this film 
do. So I say those couple things. Where, where, where are you guys at when, when I bring those things up? Um, well, of course, I went to the list um, that, that we've done to try to see if, if I agree if it's the most well acted. I am currently sitting at uh, three movies. Uh, well, two that I have not watched yet that you guys uh, reviewed while I was on vacation. I've yet to see Garden State or Crazy Stupid Love, but I, I imagine that they aren't going to com- compare to the acting in this one. So I'll go ahead and say that that's safe. Um, the only movie that I can come up with that I think gives it a run for acting would be um, Primal Fear. Um if I remember correctly, though, we poked a few holes in um, some of the acting in that when we discussed it from uh, from you know memory. I would have said that maybe the best acting of any character that in any film that we've we've done would be um, Ed Norton in that movie. Uh, however, I mean you're right there. If it's not Ed Norton's character in, in Primal Fear, then it's probably definitely Jake Gyllenhaal in in this one. Um, you know, there's probably a, a couple characters in the dark Knight that, uh, I mean, with, uh, Heath Ledger in that one, that, that would give it a run. But as far as collectively as a film, um, with more than one actor, um, yeah, I would say I would agree with that. Um, we'll get Mike's take on it and then you'll have to remind me what your second point was that you wanted us to touch on there. So you know, to go along with what Brad was saying, as I'm looking through the list, I think singular performance, if you were going to say which movie that we have reviewed has the best singular performance, this one doesn't have the best singular performance, right? Ledger in the Dark Knight and Ed Norton in Primal Fear. Primal Fear is where I immediately kind of went to, but I don't think that the ensemble on the whole is as strong as this one. I think the same thing of The Dark Knight. I will say, as I look through this list, the one that jumped out to me in terms of ensemble, very different movie, but Mad Max Fury Road, um, which is another one that I had not seen prior to us watching it uh, for this podcast. Uh, I would put that one up as probably the movie on this list that would make the best debate for your point there, Ethan, but very different movies. And so it's hard to me to kind of, apples to apples them yeah um i I could see that that was one when i looked back through before i made that point i guess just to me at the end of the day like that movie is so driven on how technically beautiful it's made that it doesn't have to lean on the acting whereas this if the acting in this isn't good like we're not even going to be i'm never going to bring this movie to you guys you know like Yes, it is also shot really well. And I mean, Roger Deakins got nominated for cinematography and that's fine. But the performances in this, this isn't an action movie. This is purely dramatic acting. And I've never been a fan of Terrence Howard and just my personal preference. He's the only person in this movie that I'm not like, wow, they also killed it. And it's really just, I don't know why I've just never bought it. Like his reaction when the girls first go missing just seems off to me. But other than that, like it's a two and a half hour movie completely driven by the performances on screen. And I don't see a false note. I mean, even Maria Bello, how she plays the, the depression that instantly comes over her. And she just like, she can't even get out of bed. Like the, the line, you know, where she's like, you know, you always made us feel so safe. And like, the way she says that is almost like you feel it as an insult. Like you, mm-hmm. like you, it, not even that, like there's not even comfort in that. Like she's almost more upset that she felt like just that she can convey that as a character who has, you know, the sixth most screen time in the movie, like just through and through, there's so many great moments. That's why uh, I went with that direction. And then, I mean, as far as my other point goes, I mean, we don't need to waste time saying that the Academy's stupid, <laughs> I, I, I watch it every year and then every year the movie that wins two months later people find a reason to hate it so it is what it is you know someday jake gyllenhaal is going to win one i'm sure i think it's it would be an injustice if hugh jackman never did um and i get we can kind of transition because that's where we usually go on this is the performances in the film 
And I'll just ask you guys your opinion of Hugh Jackman, because to me, I think from a dramatic perspective, he gets kind of left in the dust. Um, you know, he, he's known for being Wolverine. Um, he's done the greatest showman. He's done Les Mis. He, I, I think he's known as like an entertainer first and an actor second, but it's movies like this. And there's other performances in his career to me, to me, this guy is a list and at any moment can carry a film with his performance. And, and I've always been a huge fan. Where, where have you guys always been on Hugh Jackman? Um, I, I like him. I mean, he's never been someone that I think of as like, oh, wow, you know, just fantastic actor. I think this is one of the first times that uh, to me, he kind of stood out there. There were some things that I I don't know, something just felt off with him in that role. Uh, I can't put my finger on it. I don't know if it's uh, just some of the edge that he brought before uh, before the girls were taken um, just seemed a little, I don't know, he seemed aggressive, just kind of half, half cocked for no reason. Um, and, you know, maybe there was a reason he's going for that. And if I rewatch it, I could probably uh, figure that out a little bit. Um, honestly, though, just nitpicking a little bit, like, I think part of it was the goatee and the look like something just didn't look right when I was watching him on screen. It didn't look like him. Um, and there was just something about the choice of how they had him looking and, and the way he was dressed and, and presented on screen that just, I don't know, just didn't jive with what I thought I should be seeing. So there was just little things that are hard to explain, but overall great performance. Uh, I think that uh, I mentioned to you today, like, it'd be easy to see how you could get to that spot if your kids were, were missing. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know that I'd be capable of torturing another human, but that would be the thing that would uh, get me there for sure. Um, if I thought that somebody had my kids and could give me the answers to that, like, um, yeah, I definitely would have been right there with him. Um, so yeah, great, great job. I, I think that Hugh Jackman did, uh, uh, he definitely did not take the, he didn't steal the the film that was, that was Gyllenhaal in my mind, but uh, um, yeah, great job by him. I mean, it's hard to think of Hugh Jackman and not think of him as Wolverine. And I think to Brad's point of something just seemed a little off with him. Um, I actually gave him credit for that in my mind because it was very clear to me that I was not watching Wolverine and um, for a guy who has played that character so many times and where the bulk of my time with him has been spent to be able to so clearly be playing a different character is not always the easiest. I think sometimes we take that for granted. Um, you know, I'm a pretty big Jackman fan. As I, you know, look through his, his filmography, I have, if you set aside the bulk of like the uh, X-Men movies, I have a pretty clear top four um, favorite movies of his. And I imagine, you know, Ethan, from what we've talked about, that they would probably be, uh, if not the same four, pretty close. Um, but I think that he's a pretty talented actor. I think in Logan, he was able to show a depth to that character, as we had kind of referenced, that uh, is pretty impressive. And um, so, yeah, I, I think he's probably underrated on the whole. And to tie it directly back to your prior point, I think that the Academy got it totally wrong by not recognizing this performance as a uh, Academy Award nominee. Yeah, I think, I mean, if, if he retires someday and his only nomination is for Les Mis, that, that like, I just, it just won't make sense. I mean, cause I, and I think he should have gotten nominated for Logan too. Like you said, adding depth to a comic book character, the, the big three that I think everybody would agree on if they've seen uh, those films from his career would be in terms of just performance, this prestige and Logan, right? So yep. at that, and I just checked prestige came out in October. So knowing how Mike and I feel about it and Brad, you haven't seen it, right? Uh, I think I have, it's been a long time, but okay. uh, I, I, I'd yeah, be I shocked if we get through next month and don't end up talking about that movie as many times as we've referenced it. We'll see. But um definitely i i just think what he brings to this and it's kind of just putting a bow on things that you guys have both said it's really hard to make the guy that we know as wolverine 
look unassuming because the challenge is to make it seem like he is crossing a line to torture someone, right? Like if he was just to, if he was Liam Neeson's character from Taken, we'd be waiting to see it, right? Like it has to be that he snapped. We have to believe that he isn't this person, but was forced to be this person. And just, just kind of the desperation that he has in those first couple scenes with Gyllenhaal, who we'll talk about in a second, but his stammering and, you know, just kind of just grasping at straws, like, no, 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 please just think about this. Think about this. Think about this you know, all the way through to when he thinks maybe that his daughter is dead and just that quiet, you know, like this is on you. You followed me instead of finding him. Like just those moments, just the way he delivers those lines just really hits home for me. Like he he does a great job. And then you have the big moments, the scene in the car, which maybe we'll talk about later is a favorite scene, but um, that interaction where he's just, destroying the inside of Jake Gyllenhaal's car because he can't do anything else, right? Everything he does in this movie is seemingly just out of desperation. I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to do this. And he conveys that really well. So that's one half of the leading duo. The other is Jake Gyllenhaal. As I've said, my favorite, uh, my personal favorite actor, my favorite Jake Gyllenhaal film, which I don't know if you guys have seen this, is End of Watch. It's one of my five favorite movies of all time. To me, it's a perfect blend of I enjoy great acting mixed with I'm a huge action movie fan, and that movie just has a ton of action. Um, This is the kind of movie for me that I would never put in my top 10 because I think as we'll talk, like it's hard to watch. Is this one of the 10 greatest films I've ever seen just in terms of all the talent around it? Maybe I could make that argument to myself, but like, End of Watch will always be what I'll rewatch. So to me, if I just ask you guys what Jake Gyllenhaal's peak is, it's tough for me not to say that. But in terms of pure dramatic performance, it's hard to top this. The performance he gives, and I'll let you guys touch on it too, just from the first time I've seen this, that I saw this movie, I always noticed the little ticks that he has. And through the research I've done, the tattoos on his hands and his neck the jewelry that he wears and the facial tics all were Jake Gyllenhaal going to the director and saying, I'm reading into this character. I'm feel like I'm becoming this character. I want to go this way. And that's just a ton of credit to someone just like fully buying into their art and to their acting and to those kind of things. And I think it pays off because to me, that's just always stuck out. I want to know why he has that tick. I want to know why that's going on for him. And that's just something that adds to the character. So I'll let you guys jump in as well on uh, Gyllenhaal's performance and what you guys think of Gyllenhaal overall as well. I guess before we move on, I want to touch on your point of uh, that you made on Hugh Jackman. And I think what one of the things you said was one of the things I'm holding against him is it didn't seem to me like he, he ever just snapped. Like he seemed like he would be that guy the whole time. Like he seemed like he was ready um, for that to me. The part that, that would have made it seem like someone snapped as if Terrence Howard had played the character he did at the beginning. And then all of a sudden he was the one that had to convince Hugh Jackman to help him uh, hurt that person. And I think that's what was missing that I didn't get that, that part from him where he drew you in to care about him first or to think, Oh, Hey, this is a compassionate, loving guy that, um, is now going to be, you know, he's, he's going to become this badass. Like, I, I think that that's just the one little thing that he missed um, to me. Um, as far as Gyllenhaal, uh, I don't have a, a strong opinion on his career. Um, to me, he's somebody that I, I don't, uh, I do enjoy him. I don't, you know, when he's on, I don't dislike him or I, I wouldn't say that I'm not a fan of his career. Um, he's just not to me, one of those guys that, uh, um, has ever just been like, Hey, yeah, that's a, that's an A-list actor. That's the guy who, uh, is one of the best actors of this generation. Um, if I remember right, there was a movie came out when I was younger. What was it like October sky where he was, he was pretty young in that one, I believe. Right. Um, yeah. And that for whatever reason, um, that was the first impression he made on me. Um, and so like, that's kind of how I always have uh, remembered 
uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. So it, it's been hard for me to move past that. He seems a lot like um, uh, who's the actor that did uh, Spider-Man um, about 10 years ago? Uh, Maguire, Toby Maguire. Don't, don't um, be mean. That's just they, rude. I think Gyllenhaal is a much better actor than Tobey okay. Maguire, but I guess what I'm getting at is like those two have parallel careers to me. I remember them from when they were younger. And um, yeah, I think that that is um, how I'm going to remember him. Um, as far as the choices that you mentioned Gyllenhaal made with the character, um, I think that a lot of it goes hand in hand with the writing and the, the directing of the film you mentioned his jewelry his neck tattoos um in my deep dive and some things that i also noticed on my own um even going with his name uh detective loki um loki obviously a norse god who uh um is kind of known for his shenanigans and his uh um I don't know, like ways of fighting against authority or fighting against leadership. And I think that what he was representing there with the uh, tattoos and the uh, messianic ring and the, the Zodiac questions in there is like, he, I think he was trying to make himself represent all these non-Christian entities because, um, you know, I think through this whole film, there is this battle of good versus evil Christianity versus, um, uh, I guess, Satan, you could say, or, or evil. Um, and I think that uh, in, in kind of the Ragnarok theme where Loki, you know, where gods fight giants, like this is a, uh, a thematic part of the film where he's showing like, hey, in some ways, Christianity is going to have to work with uh, the other angle to overcome and that's a much deeper uh thing in this film than just the standard plot line of watching it but i think that the the writer did a great job of showing like uh, another level of um good and evil not just you know god and satan but um all the other stuff that he was kind of bringing to that with that character i mean even the choice of the name was incredible with loki because it's like that was part of the, one of the first things that made me think, all right, I'm going to have to read on this. Cause why would they, why would they pick that name? Um, if they weren't, you know, going for a point there. And I, I see it with a lot of the names in the film with the, uh, the grace and the birch and, uh, joy and, um, just so many things. There's not a single thing in this film that was done by accident. And that's really cool. Um, everything means something and you just have to figure out, what it is and what it's pointing to. And um, I really like that uh, down to the questions he's asking the, the waitress and the stuff that he's wearing. And, you know, it's, it's just really, really well done. So, and, and if, if Jake was the one that decided to bring that extra layer to that and that depth, that depth to that character, that's uh, even more credit to him. So yeah, well done performance and um, not going to knock you at all for saying that he's your favorite actor. I think, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, he just has never been that for me. So I'm not the uh, the biggest fan of his, but not because I don't think he's good. I think it's just that a lot of his um, a lot of his roles have been um, just just off of mainstream. Um, there are movies that I know of, I have heard of them, uh, but I haven't watched by and large. I think, in fact, you know, I'm familiar with Donnie Darko going a ways back in October Sky. Um, I think that uh, really the day after tomorrow and Southpaw may be the only two movies of his that I can tell you with confidence. I've seen obviously two very different movies. I enjoyed him quite a bit in Southpaw. Um, the day after tomorrow was perfectly fine for what it was, but uh, that's not something that you're going to, you know, rest your, your acting chops on. Um, I was quite impressed by this and, and it certainly makes it more likely that I will take a, uh, a stab at a Jake Gyllenhaal movie moving forward because his performance in this definitely um, lived up to the hype that uh, quite frankly, Ethan, I've only heard from one person and that's you. And so uh, you, you've done a good job of representing him um, 
to uh, to those of us who aren't as familiar with his filmography, if this is the type of performance that you see in those other movies. I thought it was phenomenal. As I mentioned earlier, I thought uh, Jackman did a great job, um, but there's no doubt that uh, Hall really steals the movie. Um, and given the, the level that I think that Hugh Jackman rose to, it's saying an awful lot about Hall that he did that. Uh, I would go as far as to say, without even looking at the year, it's hard for me to imagine that anyone should have won um, what I would imagine would have been the best supporting actor based off of screen time. But in either category, I can't imagine that there was a performance uh, more impressive this year than uh, Hall's performance as an actor. It's crazy that this isn't even for Hall the snub, quote unquote, that people talk about. He was also not nominated for Nightcrawler, um, another movie that's tough to watch. But if you see that, there is even even compared to this an extra gear that he goes to honestly in my opinion there's even like another step that he takes um just in his abilities so the year that this would have been in contention was the year matthew mcconaughey won for dallas buyers club lead actor um beating out uh chitwell chuatel edgy of four for 12 years a slave and leonardo dicaprio for wolf of wall street that was the big competition supporting actor was jared leto in the same movie my big thing is when I looked through it, I had already said that, you know, Michael Fassbender, okay, cool. Like you played an incredibly racist plantation owner. That role has been done thousands of times in film. He did a great job, but it's not anything new. Uh, but the thing that year, American Hustle, I don't know if you guys ever saw that one. To me, one of the most overrated movies of the last 20 years. And it got nominated for everything. And that's just a movie that's like, take a deep breath, take a second. We don't have to nominate people just because we like nominating them. Let's actually just say what the best performances were. And like you said, Mike, I've seen Dallas Buyers Club because of how much of a Matthew McConaughey fan I am. Would I take Hugh Jackman's performance in this against his? Probably not. But would I take Jake Gyllenhaal over Jared Leto? 10 out of 10 times. 100%. I, I mean, that, that, that would be without question. But So those are the two main guys. Um, I do want to just touch on the director. Denis Villeneuve. Um, I'm a huge fan. I'm going to guess that you guys uh, wouldn't off the top of your head name films from his filmography. It is not a large one. Um, this was his first big mainstream film. He did do a small independent film prior to this, but um, he goes this, does another small film in the same year with Jake Gyllenhaal, Enemy. I wouldn't suggest watching it. One of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Uh, Sicario, I am a massive fan of. I love Sicario. Then he does Arrival. We all know my feelings on Arrival and Brad's feelings on Arrival. Blade Runner 2049, it is what it is. Wasn't a huge fan of the original, but people do love it. Now he's about to get, uh, he, he's about to release Dune, which I think looks fantastic. So this guy, to me, if you take the main three, Prisoners, Sicario, Arrival, what I see is an immensely talented director that as long as people continue to watch his movies, he's going to get to do whatever he wants to do. You see it in this. He has a vision. He executes that vision. Um, I know Brad and I like to joke with each other about arrival, but again, same thing that he doesn't just make a movie for the common denominator. He has a plan. It is usually an elaborate one, but he knows how to execute it. And I have always been a big fan. Um, have you guys seen Sicario? Yeah, I have. I have not. Okay. Obviously that one, and Brad, I don't know if really how you feel about it. That one is more, um, that one's easier to watch. It is more of an action movie than this, um, but still a lot of underlying tones that they get into beyond just the basic story that they're trying to tell, like we see here. Yeah, I think... Um both great films. I think that uh, what I appreciate about this one is the depth and complexity. Um, I just, I sat back and applauded after it was done. I just like, wow, well done. I, there, it, it tricked me in ways that I didn't expect. And it had layers and depth to it that I did not expect, um, which I really appreciated just film wise. Um, I think I like Sicario more than this. Um, I'd have to go back and rewatch it, but uh, um yeah, I'm a, I'm a big uh, fan of that movie. Uh, Benicio del Toro uh, is is fantastic in that. Um, 
yeah, just, you know, Josh Brolin, Emily Blunt in that one, like, uh, and, you know, Ethan's twin, John Bernthal. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that um, Sicario overall is a better um, entertainment, entertainment movie to watch, but I think just what he did with this would have to say um, to me, I don't know how you could top it as far as uh, what he was able to do um, on the screen. So um, yeah, those two definitely um, great films and maybe I should give a couple more of his a try just based on how I feel about those two films. Well, guess what month Sicario came out in fellas? October, October. So just live on air. You guys are getting to see some behind the scenes stuff of maybe what we'll be getting into next month. But um, just in terms of other performances, if you guys wanted to highlight anything, um, I always love seeing Viola Davis and things. Um, to me, this was kind of around the time that I really started to realize like, oh, that's that person I've seen kind of my whole life pop up and stuff. She's always amazing. She's only in this for a couple scenes, but I think she always brings it. Melissa Leo is one of the creepiest villains of all time when that's finally revealed. And I guess to that point, I'll just ask the question now twist. I don't know if you want to call it that. Cause it is, it's not like a, I don't know. It's, it's not like an out of nowhere thing, Brad, you kind of said this to me off air, but it's right there for you to see the whole time. Did you guys have any inclination where this was headed with her character throughout the film? Um, no, I mean, I, I don't want to say it, no, because I want to be that guy that, you know, thinks that he can figure this stuff out. And but that's what made me applaud this. Um, and we can get into the, the deep dive of it a little bit if, if you want. Um, but before we before we do that, I'll answer this and then Mike can answer it. But no, I, I did not see it coming. Um, she did a good enough job of throwing um, off the scent with her with her acting Um very, very, very duplicitous, obviously, if she can live both lives simultaneously in front of, um, you know, detectives and in front of uh, just whatever, and then have this going on behind the scenes. Um, they they gave us several chances to figure this out um, throughout the film. It was almost like, hey, look here, look here, finger pointing over here, finger pointing over here. Um, but I did not, um, I did not know that that's where the kids would be. Um, and it, it's sad cause that's the kind of stuff that I, I just want to figure out when I'm watching this stuff. But before we do the deep dive, Mike, uh, what, what's your answer to that question for him? I got about halfway there. Um, I, I, and I'm trying to think of the character's name, but when they, when they break in, he breaks into the house of the guy who had the snakes and the, the totes and, and all of that. Right. Um, with all this stuff, simple like Bob, or I believe. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and uh, a great, you know, um, he was also yeah. that actor with The Dark Knight, right? Uh, yes, so, Dave, David Desmalchen. There you go. So definitely, he's got a uh, a very recognizable face, and uh, so I, I put that there. When I saw all of the the drawings on the walls, I immediately honed in on the one that was identical to the necklace of of the corpse in the the crawl space there. And so I made that connection quickly and was like, well, this somehow connects back to there. And something felt off with uh, with her character. But I kept on thinking, well, that's got to be too obvious because the easy way out to semi redeem, um, you know, Hugh Jackman's character is to in some way, shape or form still have this tie back to, you know, him and to her. Uh, but I didn't get fully there, no. And so when it came to the end, I felt like, kind of like Brad was saying, like I was most of the way there. I should have gotten there, but I was still waiting for the other shoe to drop in a different direction. Well, I, I think the genius of this is that, you know, if you, I, I remember seeing the previews for this movie and just assuming, okay, a movie like this has to have a crazy twist, right? And if you hear about something like this and as you're watching it, you would assume that because that's kind of what we've been trained to look for is the big twist. And this is an, a great example of if you just write a good story and you execute a good story, it doesn't have to be that secretly Maria Bello has kidnapped the kids, right? Like it, it's right there the whole time because the, the twist is just that 
he took them home. He took them to the first place we went to, the first place we looked, right? Like, that's not really that big of a twist. It's just the execution of just the moment that you see him walk that dog, right? That's what I remember in the in the theaters. When he takes that dog out and Hugh Jackman's watching him and he picks that little dog up by the leash, right? Just that act alone to me, I was like, he has to have done this. He has to be guilty. That guy is not a misunderstood person to me. Just I saw that just violent act to that dog. And I knew, just like Hugh Jackman's character, he has to know where these kids are at. And he does. But by the end of it, it was the fact that, yeah, he is not all there mentally. He was not maliciously trying to kidnap these two girls it was kind of just a product of everything around it. And we were staring the bad guy in the face the entire time. It just wasn't this huge, massive twist. It was just a good piece of storytelling. And that to me is the mastery of this movie and the writing and the execution of it. Yeah. I think that's a fair point, Ethan. Um, What probably makes it the most impressive is that it was just staring you in the face pretty much the whole time. um, And everything was pointing there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, ev- everything was almost exactly as it seemed with the exception of they kind of had her turn be just a little bit uh, more well hidden. But uh, it all led to where you might have imagined it could have led right up front, um, but just through some great storytelling. So, yeah, I agree with that. Here's where the, the deep dive to me was the most impressive. And it's the the way the story's told. And the way the clues are given are so bold and so in your face, but yet you can't get it because um, the this was written as though the movie itself is a maze, like the um, all of the maze th- themes in this. And there's no linear timeline. There's no linear like, you know, you see this and then you see this and then you can figure it out. And here's the answer. It 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 tells you about a story from the 1980s it tells you about the missing guy it tells you about this other kid who was abducted and now we've got this abduction and then it tells you about uh uh, hugh jackman's dad committing suicide and then it tells you about all of these things and all of these are different prisons that all of these people have been in uh their entire lives and they're they're telling us this you know, this abduction thing started this prison for these people in the 1980s when um, the the boy was taken. And what I don't understand as far as like um, the, the detective goes. So Alex Jones was abducted in that yard that these kids were taken in, in front of the house that he lived in as a child. And pointed there the whole time like obviously no one's going to be able to really fully tell like hey uh this is the kid that was abducted then but there's so much similarity between him and that kid and then the placement of the rv and all of that like i guess i'm just surprised that that was never a thing that uh gyllenhaal's character kind of went to he started to put those pieces together but never fully got there um, when he, when he started to make those connections. But um, I, uh, other things that I noticed, like the, 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 the motive, the motifs of the, the water, the motifs of the um, trees, um, just different things like that uh, and the symbols that they have, but even something as simple as they lived in a maze. I think that they, even set that up to look that way when they left that house and you see Terrence Howard run one way and the other two guys run the other way, they took different paths and ended up in the same place to show that even they're, they're living in a maze, like everything about everything that they're doing represents prison or represents a maze or uh, just being locked in there. Ethan, you had said something about, uh, him being uh i think you said not all there were your exact words um and i i think that there's some truth to that but i think it was more the fact that this this kid had been drugged um, most of his life probably with that stuff and then also 
I'm sure the amount of abuse that he's taken, um, I think what, you know, there's just a, a cognitive dissonance there that when he uh, was faced with any kind of threat, he reverted back to, you know, three, four, five years old, it seemed. And I think he couldn't connect the questions with the answers. Like, um, I don't think he was purposefully trying to hide the answers from um, Hugh Jackman. I think that he just couldn't connect it. And finally, when he did, and he said the maze and gave him the clues there, um, I, I think that, that that was there. I think the only time he made a choice to say basically – F you dude was when he said they didn't cry until I left. Like he was, he was in the right spot. He had made eye contact with uh, Gyllenhaal's character basically to, you know, uh, I don't know, a mutual respect, I guess that he had, he wasn't threatened by him. So he was just, he was fooling him at that point, you know, lying to protect um, his, his aunt air quotes, aunt there. Um, and then, he basically says F you to uh, Hugh Jackman and, and, and says that line. But then the rest of it, I don't think was at all by choice. I think it was all just, you know, like I mentioned, that cognitive dissonance there that he had when being abused. Um, and matter of fact, Hugh Jackman did the exact worst thing he could possibly do is because the more abuse he doled out, the deeper this kid was going to go into that that dark safe place that he needed to go to, to survive it, um, which he had done essentially his entire life. So um, the part I found fascinating is the, the Stockholm syndrome part of it, of like, you know, he's got these two girls that he doesn't mean to do any harm to yet. He takes them to the one person that has done harm to him his whole life, you know? Um, and I think once he realizes like, oh crap, what have I done? That's when he takes the RV and tries to run um, and is just scared to death. And I don't know if he was trying to kill himself or if he just freaked out, but runs into that tree and then hides. Um, I think all of that was by choice because, you know, basically he's just going to put these two girls through what he went through. Um, so yeah, just like I said, very well done. Um, and just the, the layers of imprisonment that all of the characters have. And I think you even mentioned um, Gyllenhaal's eye twitch. And you had said to me earlier today, like, you know, he must be on drugs or, or, or something like that. And I, I don't think that's the case. I took it as um, his prison is his uh, perfectionism and his record of, of being perfect and never having an unsolved crime. And I think the, the pressure of the fact that he didn't know if he was going to be able to solve it. He, you know, he was six, seven days in and starting to freak out that he wasn't getting any answers. And that's when you notice his, his eyes start twitching more. Um, he's becoming unstable. Um, he's, he's unpredictable and he smashes the guy's head in the table and, you know, loses his gun. And all of that was, I think, driven by his prison is like, Hey, I, I'm the guy with the answers. I'm the guy that has to figure this out. There's so, so much pressure on him. There could have been, you know, something more to it than that, but that's what I took away is each character had their own prison of sorts. And that was his, um, he's stuck there because, um, he has to, he has to be perfect. He has to be right. He has to be the, the hero. Um, and those aren't, that's not a bad prison to be in, but obviously if, if he can't get the correct answers, then um, it's going to drive him to that place. So um, it, it has its own set of issues, I guess. But what are your guys' thoughts on, on some of that? I feel like I'm kind of rambling at this point. Um, I, so I always, just in terms of like his tick, I kind of always just assumed that he was recovering from some kind of like drug or alcohol thing between that and the he keeps the uh, coffee beans in his car I don't know if you guys noticed that he basically just like straight up eats coffee beans and I felt like I've always just kind of assumed that was just kind of his like coping thing like you know he doesn't do cocaine anymore or whatever but he you know he eats coffee beans to get like a caffeine rush or something like that that was just kind of what I always did and I mean I think part of that does play into though his perfectionism of 
he he just seems like a character that's always on the edge. Whereas like Hugh Jackman clearly went over that edge. Jake Gyllenhaal seems to just be walking around like a ticking time bomb. And we do see him lose it, obviously, in his interactions with David Desmalchin's character. Um, but he is always just kind of chasing that. Like, he has to be the one to find it. And the captain has that line, you know, like, we can't always be the hero. Sometimes we're janitors. And that's just not good enough for him. Like, there there has to be more. Um, but, yeah, that's always just kind of how I've looked at it. Yeah, I think I tend to agree with that interpretation of it, Ethan. I think that the twitch gets worse as things go on because of probably, on the one part, the pressure that, you know, you guys are talking about on the other hand he's probably not sleeping well and after six plus days of not sleeping and doing nothing but trying to work on this case and uh eating a bunch of coffee beans i i bet that he is uh, more than just a little uh not in his right mind or best health yeah i, I like the the homage they did to the end too with the um uh in the refrigerator scene when uh that hole in the house was covered by the fridge and he, you know, his very first reaction was to kind of mentally dismiss it. Like, okay. Yeah. You know, okay. He stretched the cord, but then he regathers himself and his thoroughness won't allow him to not move the fridge. And then he finds that was a, um, another one of those clues as to later on in this film, um, we're going to face this again and then we're going to be left to decide, you know, uh, on that very end cliffhanger, like is to find the guy, is he going to, uh, take the time to figure out where that sound is coming from? And, uh, my, my vote is obviously yes. And I'm sure Ethan's probably going to get to that question. I, I kind of figured at some point, like, how does it play out after it, it goes to black? But, um, I think, what the writer and the director did in that scene was show you exactly how it's going to play it out. The end is he, there's no way that this perfectionist guy who is thorough in everything that he does is going to just be like, Oh, okay. I, I hear a noise and I'm on this, uh, you know, this lovely playground of going on around me and I'm not going to go find out where it's coming from. So um, I think that was just a little, earlier like nod to yep we're gonna see this again and it's gonna play out the same way yeah i mean i i agree with you brad and i'm curious ethan where where your take is on it but very simply the way that his eyes snapped to right before it goes to black to me leaves no doubt that he's locked in on where the sound's coming from and if the cameras were rolling for another couple of minutes uh he's gonna he's gonna figure out where um jackman is yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, they just do, they do everything they need to do to explain what happens after it cuts to black with just the quick conversation between him and Maria Bello. Um, he, I think he completely understands what Hugh Jackman was going through. And I think part of it is seeing the perfectionism that he has, he will end up blaming himself for Hugh Jackman probably spending I don't know about the rest of his life, but probably a good portion of the rest of his life in prison. And I think Jake Gyllenhaal's character will end up blaming himself for that because he will think if I'd have seen this or I'd have seen that, I'd have gotten this family back together. Like I don't think any part of him wants to pull Hugh Jackman out of that hole and arrest him, but he's going to have to. And that's what he tells her too. Like he probably will go to jail, but um, let's play a game well, and start moving before Okay, before you jump into that one last point, like I think the thing that was absolutely perfect about their choice to end it the way they did was to show like this guy's no matter what, he's not going to be trapped in a hole in the ground the rest of his life. And there's a chance that he, you know, might have to go to prison or might spend part of his life there. But no matter what, he's going to be in prison by what happened in this. Like he's going to carry the weight of this and oh, the depth yeah. of this the rest of his life and that's another prison that he's going to be stuck in and i think that that was a perfect way to show it like it doesn't matter if he's in a hole he's going to be um imprisoned by this in in, in many different ways um which i think was an absolute perfect way to end that film so um yeah just another uh 
applauding moment for them to make that choice. And they said I, in the deep dive, I, I read that they did film the scene where he uh, did, you know, uncover the hole and find him down there. But they, they just looked at each other and said, no, this is this isn't right. This isn't the way that we're supposed to leave this because um, uh, it, I think it was just too clean and too, too. Uh, well put together at the end for them and they they decided to go back to it so well done great choice um and i'm glad that they they left it where they did yeah i i would agree i i don't think it needed to go on any longer than that i think that was a good final scene there um rotten tomatoes game gentlemen brad i think you are up first so let's just go for it what do you think the sitting critic score is for prisoners I'm guessing it's probably higher than the fans. Uh, for whatever reason, this, uh, because of its being hard to watch and also weirdly unpopular um, for the actors that were in this. And I, I noticed Mark Wahlberg was an executive director, like for, for having the names attached to this. I hadn't heard of it before last month when you said we're going to do it in September. Um, if I had, I completely forgot about it. So uh, for whatever reason, um, yeah, it was just one of those movies that has stayed under the radar, um, not only for me, but for, for a lot of people, I think. But um, so my guess is that the critics number is probably higher, and I'm sure you'll tell us. But uh, I think it's probably pretty decent. I'm going to go, um, hmm, let's say, 81. I'm going to go with a score of 81. Uh, well, I am going to go, uh, again, I'm kind of following Brad's logic there, but um, since he went there, I'm going to make it a little interesting, and I'm going to give a little space between uh, where we're at, and I'll go 85. So, uh, Brad, you hit it right on the head. Uh, it is 81. <laughs> yeah. Um, Holy but, crap. What, but what you were wrong on and what is fascinating is that it's actually the opposite direction. The fan score is 87 for this. Oh, wow. Um, now, it did. It was a $46 million budget, made 122. So, actually, for a first-time mainstream director, a movie that is clearly trying to win Oscars in terms of, like, the star power they're putting behind it, and it, it just swings and misses, it, it was a successful enough film financially. Um, probably ended up making like 40 million, which two and a half hour drama movie. Like that's, that's pretty good. Um, and yeah, insanely long. That was weird. Um, I started that as like, holy crap, two and a half hours, man. Yeah, for sure. This thing. But yeah, weird. I just, I mean, this is kind of the example we always use, but I just don't understand if a hundred critics watch this, I would really love to hear the honest critique from 19 people. If your critique is, I just don't ever want to see this again because I don't want to see kids get kidnapped, okay. If your critique is, they did a poor job of executing this film, I don't understand why you watch movies because you clearly have missed the point. Like, it, it, I, but, you know, I guess whatever. Film is subjective to teach their own. Let's wrap it up. Favorite line, favorite scene. Uh, again, this one a little tougher. There's not really scenes that are exciting to watch. Uh, necessarily from a content perspective, but uh, we'll see where it takes us. Gentlemen, what was your favorite scene here in Prisoners? Ah, uh, wow. Um, the, as I was thinking about it, the, I'll just go with the scene that jumped out to me the most. I don't think it was my favorite. I mean, it, it's hard to, in a movie like this to have a favorite scene, um, but it's, it's where... Um, and I'm going to get her name wrong, so let me look it up here. Uh, Viola Davis um, brings the humanity back to the moment when she wants to see uh, who they have kind of in, in prison there that they're torturing. And she goes over to him and um, tries to be humane and, and take the soft approach and almost loses her eye. You know, he, he has the glass and he's swinging it. Um, and you know, she's very fortunate there. Um, but it just showed in those moments, like, yeah, even though this kid has been beaten and tortured his whole life and imprisoned, um, and she tries to be, uh, bring the humanity to it, like, sometimes that might just be the wrong choice. Like, he, it was too far gone at that point. She put herself and she put them in danger. Um, 
not only of him hurting them, but him, what if he escapes there? And then, you know, they're all in trouble for that. Like, um, and then he even, she would have actually put her daughter's life in, at risk because, um, you know, he actually is connected to the person that has taken them. So, um, I think it just showed like, even though I think all of us would choose to be that person in that moment, um, that it, it made you really think like, you know, would I, would I be able to, to be humane and, and, and it, but would it backfire like that? So I think because of the way that made me think that that was the scene that kind of stood out to me is, is what I would call my, my favorite. For me, uh, you mentioned it earlier, but I have to go with the the scene in the car outside of the liquor store. Um, I, I think that that one uh, brings both of their acting abilities straight to uh, the forefront. Some good dialogue there, a lot of intensity. And uh, so I won't belabor it, but uh, that would be my favorite one. Well, also acknowledging, as you pointed out, it is kind of hard to pick a favorite scene in this because it's not like you can pick a rewatchable scene or a scene that, you know, you're going to say, man, I just I really want to watch that again. Um, instead, it's like which one brought the power the most. And I think it was that one for me. Yeah, that that would probably be my choice, too. Um, that car scene. Uh, if I was going to pick a different one that I just think was like the one that I always remember from the movie, it it's the scenes between Gyllenhaal and Dismalchen, um, him going to the house like that, because that feels like it's going to be the twist. And I just remember just always being on edge. And that's where you do see him snap too. I mean, he, he takes him down hard in that house. And then, I mean, they don't even like, I mean, he's still busted up when he's in the interrogation room and then he slams him again you know, he, he gets the gun and then just kind of Hall really finally breaking down and smashing his keyboard and stuff. Like, I, I just think that, that that scene, those scenes really showed the humanity of Hall and I think how much he did connect to Hugh Jackman's character. I mean, he has to be a police officer. He has to tell him to back off. But I don't think at any point he's ever judging him or even necessarily like upset with him for what he's doing because he's right there with him. He just has a different set of rules that he has to follow because he's a police officer, not a father. Um, so I, I always think that's really good. Favorite line uh, guys, where, where are we going with this? Hey, I, I think my favorite line was delivered by the, the little girl when she's in the hospital bed and she kind of comes to and, um, they just ask and she looks at him and says, you were there. Um, and I think it was my favorite line because that was like the first time I was like, okay, here's the twist. My brain went to, was this guy involved the whole time? Yep. And had he done something to kidnap these girls? Um, but we just were, he was painted in the light of this desperate father. Uh, obviously that wasn't the case, you know, and he knew exactly where to, um, because, um, they were in the house when he was over there the first time. And it, that's the, the part that gave me goosebumps when I was thinking about it is like, I mean, he was essentially 20 feet away from his daughter um, and had no idea um, and they couldn't communicate. And um, so, yeah, like the, the thoughts that that line, that simple line gave me of, okay, is he the bad guy to, Oh my God, he was 20 feet from his daughter and didn't even know it. Um, uh, because of that, I would just have to say that's my favorite line of the film. Yeah, for me, I think uh, it's early on, but it's just, you know, detective, two little girls have got to be worth whatever little rule you got to break. Um, you know, and, and he, he goes on, you know, to keep him in custody. I know you can't promise me anything, but just that that pleading with the detective of these girls' lives have got to be worth whatever rule you've got to break, whatever paper you've got to push. And then the, you know, the, the inherent conflict in we want law enforcement. We want a, a system that is just, that does not, um, you know, uh, incorrectly or um, un, in an unwarranted way uh, arrest people and hold people. And yet here it is with these two little girls missing and this father's genuine desperate plea of, come on, their lives have got to be worth enough for you to fudge some paperwork and find a way to detain this guy longer. 
And the crux of this entire movie is that tension right there. How much would you do? How much would you expect others to do uh, if it was your child who was missing? And, you know, uh, God willing, none of us will ever have to experience that. But as Brad alluded to earlier, I can imagine that um, that this scenario would take me to a pretty dark place. And, um, you know, I think that you want to believe the best in people and you want to believe uh, in goodness. Um, but that scene really hit home to me in that line in particular with just that, um, that desperation. Yeah. I mean, we didn't really even touch on the torture scenes, but my God, those things are, I mean, you feel just the pain behind every hit. And then like, I think it's when Viola Davis walks in and he looks up and his face is just complete. I mean, that is, it is not easy. Um, to watch some of the scenes of this movie and then something just as simple as a shower that they can turn into something so horrifying but my favorite line um, it gets said a few times but my specific favorite time it is used um, it's it's when Hugh Jackman says pray for the best prepare for the worst but it is when Gyllenhaal rolls up on the apartment building and he fakes being like passed out drunk and he kind of he's like I'm not going to find two little girls in here am I and then he says that, and Gyllenhaal says, well, we do finally agree on something. And I've, I mean, I've kind of touched on this a couple times, but I really do think the only difference between these two guys at the end of the day is one's a father and one's a cop. And there's that moment in the midst of all of this, it seems like they're constantly working against one another because Gyllenhaal has to keep checking in on him instead of just completely focusing on uh, where the girls are at. And they just kind of have that moment I don't know if levity is the right word, but of just kind of mutual respect for one another of, Oh, you know what? We, we have something in common. I just, I appreciate that. And I think at the end of the day, if Alex Jones had an IQ of a normal 35 year old man, maybe he doesn't push Hugh Jackman on the disappearance or anything like that, because he probably would believe that he could have done it, but he's hung up on, my logic is telling me there's no way this guy did this. I have to move on, but he still does feel for him uh, as a father. So that was our conversation of prisoners uh, next week. We're still getting intense next week, but definitely uh, a, a movie that is more rewatchable. Um, Brad's pick for the month of September, as we cap, cap it off the town. Uh, we're going up to Boston, uh, Ben Affleck, Jeremy Renner, Ben Affleck directs it, so we'll get into all that stuff. I think our first Ben Affleck movie. I could be wrong. I say I usually say stuff like that, and I am, but I think I'm right on this one. Um, we'll get into that. That's next week. This was Prisoners, guys. Thank you so much for joining the show, Brad. Am I wrong? No. The the only tension that I have uh, about this film coming up is: is it going to be um, my new number one? Is it going to have enough to knock off the Dark Knight? And then how long will it stay number one until we watch Goodwill Hunting? Um, those okay. are the only two conflicts I have at this point. So, um, yeah, I, I'm excited. I'm excited to see this, and I think it's got a great chance to knock off the Dark Knight to be my number one. All right. Well, we will find out that and much more next week, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Other than that, for Mike, for Brad, I'm Ethan. And we'll see you next time.